everyone, and welcome to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Jana Gardner, here as always with my colleague Dana Spears. Hi, everyone. We're back this month with another very exciting episode for you. In this episode, we are joined by Robert Bloom, Supervising Senior Counsel here at California Association of Realtors. Robert is going to discuss some of the important new laws that will affect your business in 2023. We have a lot to cover in this episode, so let's get right to it. Welcome, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. I always uh, like talking about the new laws, so hey, it's, it's another opportunity to talk about the new laws. Okay. We are really excited to have you, and why don't we jump right into it, like Jana said. Um, were there a lot of new laws this year? Well, actually, no. I mean, <laughs> if, we're, if we're talking about new laws, of, of course, there's always a ton of laws, too many in my opinion. But if we're talking about new laws affecting agents and brokers or real estate in general, then in my estimation, there really weren't that many significant new laws affecting agents and brokers, at least not that many worth reviewing in detail. Mm-hmm. Well, of the ones that, of the new laws we do have, are any of them particularly bad in terms of making life hard for real estate agents or brokers? Well, I think we caught a break there, to tell you the truth. I, I think we avoided having any real bad laws. So, for example, there's nothing like the defensible space law that was passed in 2019. And if you know about the defensible space law, you know that continues to be a major headache for us, for agents, for yeah, everyone. Pretty complex. Yeah. yeah. Well, were there any particularly good laws? Um, yeah, I do. I think so, actually. I'll, I'll say that I think we have some pretty good laws on the books now. And when I say good law, I mean a law that I think solves a real problem and solves a problem without creating bigger problems, which is what you sometimes see with laws. So, so I think we have a good crop um, this year. Oh, nice. Well, before we get into the laws themselves, the new laws, uh, there was an update to the implicit bias training rules. I mean, we know that implicit bias training is required for all persons applying to take the exam to become a sales agent, a broker, and for renewals. But that rule has been updated, right? Yes. Well, in part, it's been updated. So, I mean, right now, currently, there is, no, in fact, no implicit bias training requirement. The implicit bias training requirement does not actually start until January 1st, 2023. And under the old rule, it was going to be applicable to anybody who was either renewing their license or anybody applying for an original broker exam or applying to become a sales agent beginning January 1st, 2023. So the coursework has now been postponed until 2024? It has, but this is the key point. It's only been postponed for people applying for the original broker exam or applying for the salesperson's licensing exam. It has not been postponed for renewals. Okay, so can you just clarify so everyone understands the rules that they are today exactly who is required to take this implicit bias training when they're renewing their license right okay so the exact requirement when renewing license is this okay if the license has a renewal date 
on or after January 1st, 2023, then that person must include implicit bias training as part of their coursework. Okay. Or, I mean, even if the renewal date um, is not after, is before January 1st, 2023, if that person is renewing their license late on or after January 1st, 2023, then again, the continuing education coursework must include an implicit bias training component. All right. Well, thank you for that update. That's very important for everyone to be aware of. Let's go ahead now and, and transition to talking to some of our more brand new laws, although as we'll get into a lot of these build on laws that have already existed. So one important new law that we want to highlight is SB 989, and that concerns some changes to the implementation of Prop 19. Uh, can you remind everyone um, what Prop 19 is all about? Sure. So, so Prop 19 was the law that we sponsored, CAR sponsored, and it was voted in two years ago as a ballot measure. And, and what it did is it allowed a homeowner to sell their primary residence and buy a replacement primary residence and take their tax basis with them. And under Prop 19, they can do this anywhere in the state up to three times and regardless of the cost of the new residence. However, if that new residence costs more, then there's an adjusted tax basis. There's a calculation that have, you have to make, but you're still getting some tax savings, even if it's a higher value. So should eligible homeowners be receiving their Prop 19 savings right now? Yeah, they should. Um, basically, the effective date for this portability portion of Prop 19, that was April 1st, 2021. So any transaction where both the buying and the selling parts of the transaction closed on or after that date, it's clearly going to qualify for uh, Prop 19 tax savings. And, and we even had this other law, a cleanup bill, SB 539, called implementing legislation. That was passed last year. And that clarified that even if the buy and the sell parts of the transaction straddle the April 1st, 2021 date, it can still qualify for Prop 19 tax savings. So right now, there are a lot of people who are in fact receiving Prop 19 tax savings. So SB 989 applies to counties with more than 4 million people. How many counties have more than 4 million people in California? Well, there's definitely at least one. I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about this law and you read that 4 million uh, person number, you're thinking, okay, well, LA County, definitely, that's a definite, right? Mm -hmm. But then you also think, hmm, um, maybe Orange County, maybe San Diego County, maybe a county in the Bay Area. But then when you look at the actual numbers, it's actually just LA County. So, so LA County is the only county with more than 4 million people. Now, a county can adopt this uh, law and apply it at its discretion. But really, this law is intended just to apply to LA County, and that's it. <laughs> so you mentioned that a lot of many eligible homeowners have already uh, taken advantage of Prop 19 and are seeing tax uh, savings right now, but not everybody, right? So that's why we're talking about this law. How many eligible homeowners haven't received their Prop 19 savings yet that should have? Well, right. So our information on this basically comes from the LA Times. <laughs> and that's 
that's the impetus for this law. According to the LA Times, there are over 1,200 people in LA County wow. who are eligible for Prop 19 tax savings, but in fact are not receiving it. Hmm. Wow. So how exactly does SB 989 work? Right. Okay. So so basically, the reason why these, these eligible homeowners are not receiving is because the county assessor has not processed the Prop 19 paperwork, right? So this law is all about being able to defer the property tax when the county assessor has not processed the Prop 19 paperwork. And, and the way it works is the homeowner must apply. They have to apply for the deferment. And they can do that within one year of receiving their first tax bill, but no later than January 1st, 2024. So January 1st, 2024 is the final cutoff date to apply and receive the deferment. Now, assuming your homeowner had applied previously, they were not granted the, the Prop 19 tax savings, and they, they've done all that, then their property taxes are deferred without penalties or interest until the LA County assessor gets their act together and, and properly assesses uh, the property. Oh, that's great. But what if the homeowner isn't able to apply before the deadline of January 1st, 2024, that final deadline? Right, well, um, I mean, in that case, according to this law, if we look at it strictly, it says they're out of luck. But you know what happens with a lot of laws is that there is a sunset date that is very, very common for the sunset date to be extended. So I would expect a similar thing to happen with this law if it appears that the LA County Assessor really has not gotten their act together. All right, good to know. So let's now move on to the second new law we wanted to talk about. Uh, this next law is AB 1410. Can you tell us what this law is all about? Sure, so, so this law concerns the right of an owner occupant in a common interest development to rent out a portion of their separate interest. And, and that is, I, I mean, I just think about it as the ability to take in a lodger. And what this law says is that you always have that right. All right, so to be clear, an HOA cannot prohibit an owner-occupant from renting out to a lodger under this law. I thought that was already the existing law. Well, in my opinion, it is the existing law. I think, <laughs> I think the existing law is actually providing um, very, very broad protections, including the right to rent out your unit to a lodger, period. Mm -hmm. But I guess there was just a little bit of a gray zone, enough of a gray zone that perhaps there had been problems with certain HOAs barring lodgers, but it was, a, it was enough of an ambiguity that people went ahead, they passed this law and clarified it completely. So this law says you can absolutely rent out uh, you know, a, a, a part of your property to a lodger. Got it. But what if the HOA had a rule in place that prohibited lodgers before an individual purchased their property? Right. So, I mean, that was an important consideration. That is an important consideration for renting out your HOA unit normally. But this law says it makes no difference. It doesn't matter whether there's a rule in place prohibiting lodgers, or even if you had purchased your property 
and that rule is already in place. So none of that matters. You have an absolute right to do it. The only restriction that the HOA can have, they can prohibit short-term rentals. So short-term rentals here are defined as renting a unit for 30 days or less. The HOA can, pre can prohibit that. And, and, and really, it's a fairly straightforward law. It's pretty simple. Yeah, that sounds pretty simple. All right, good. Well, let's move on to another new law then. Um, AB 2245 is another one we wanted to consider. That concerns partition actions. <laughs> now, not everyone is familiar with partition actions. Um, what is a partition action and why should a realtor care to know anything about partition actions? Right. Well, I'm, in my opinion, a partition action is actually a pretty important thing for a real estate agent to know about. Um, and, and basically, it's what happens when you have two people who own property together and they can't agree on whether to hold it or to sell it. And so, I mean, that's a very common circumstance. So let's say you're a 50% owner with your brother and your brother wants to hold it as an investment, but you, you want your money, right? Mm -hmm. You want to sell. So what do you do? How do you force your brother to sell if he is unwilling to do so? And the answer is you sue him. That's right. This is a lawsuit. You file a lawsuit for partition. And that's what a partition action does. It, it basically, well, in its pure form, the partition actually results in a physical partition where you just actually split the property, but you often have to sell the property as well. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but this is definitely a very common hotline call, I get, <laughs> you know, where, right? I'm sure many builders have talked to an owner or a client, potential client, where they're a co-owner and one person wants to sell, one person doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, def definitely a common issue. Robert, can you explain a little bit about how the partition action sort of works, you know, in the real world. And would you call it a fair process or is it, can it sometimes be an unfair process? What do you think? Sure. Well, the, the thing to realize about a partition action that is a traditional par partition action is that it, it, it often results in a sale. And, and this is the bad part as far as I'm concerned. It results in a sale by court auction, right? Mm -hmm. And that can mean a, a significant loss of the portion, a, a significant loss of value of the property. And, and overall fairness is really not an important consideration in that process, right? But, but under the new laws, and this was, I'm talking about a new law that was passed two years ago, that allows the, um, all of the owners to basically recover the full value of their property if and when the property has to be sold. Right. So what you're referring to is what's called like the heirs law, right? That was the partition action for what we call heirs properties. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about, you sort of just hinted at it, but what that law was and what its primary purpose was? Sure. So so the, the heirs law was really sort of a, a, a approaching this traditional kind of uh, partition action, which really resulted in a loss of value and seemed unfair. And and it was trying to make the whole process a lot fairer. So specifically, it was allowing people to recover the full value of the property if the property must be sold. And this law was really directed at stopping real estate speculators from taking advantage of this, pro this partition process, and especially in regard to property owned by African Americans. But, but frankly, the law can apply 
to everyone and it can clearly benefit you know any person it really has a much broader application although when the heirs law was first passed and this is really our change it was basically limited to people who inherited property and people that were related so inherited property related and that was the limitation so getting back to basics when will a property be required to be physically split and when will it be required to be sold okay so so you you own a piece of land you own a parcel and you want to basically for sale or you want it to be split so in general it's going to be physically split if it's almost any kind of unimproved parcel but if it's unreasonable to physically split a, a, a parcel without losing its value, then it will be sold. And so that's almost always going to be when there's like a house or some type of improvement on the property. You're not going to split the house in two. So in that case, it really, really has to be sold. So let me let me tell you how this this law, I haven't I sort of avoided the, you know answering your question in a straightforward way, but let me tell you how this law works. We passed this law um, two years, uh, no, it was last year. We passed this law last year and it changed up the traditional process in a number of ways. So first off, the whole process starts with an appraisal. And that establishes a, a minimum price at which the property will be sold. And, and there's nothing like that in the traditional approach. And, and the second thing is there's a buyout option. So whether the property is being physically partitioned or if a sale is required, the, the defendants, the, the other co-owners who are being sued, they have the option of a buyout. And, and that buyout, if it did occur, would be at the appraised value. And that, too, is not part of a traditional law. So those are two big protections right there. But the thing that we really, really like about this new law is when the property must be sold. Um, so you have the house on the property. It's not going to be split. It has to be sold. Um, and in that event, it has to go through a competitive open market sale as opposed to an auction. So, so obviously you get a much, much better price when the property is sold by a broker as a part of this open, competitive open market sale. All right. So if it is, if the judge does order the property to be sold, uh, you mentioned it's going to go on the open market. Does that mean that a broker has to actually be required to be involved in the process? What if one of the parties already knows who they want to sell it to? Uh, they don't, you know, they don't necessarily feel like they need a broker. And and is there any rules about what that broker would be paid? Right. Well, you know, an interesting thing about this law is that it requires a broker. It says huh? a broker oh, will be great. involved. Yeah, exactly. Good for brokers. Boy, I wonder how that got into the law. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, way to go. So not not having a broker is, is actually not an option. And, and the law, in fact, requires the broker to be paid a reasonable commission. And that reasonable commission is set by the judge. So, so if the parties want to pay, say, 1% to the broker, I mean, what's a reasonable commission? Right. Well, you, if the parties wanted to pay 1% to the broker, well, they can't because <laughs> they don't have that option under the law. Right? That's not reasonable. Well, it's not reasonable, but also they don't have, they, it's just not, that's not part of their right under the law. It says they can choose the broker. They have 10 days to choose the broker. But they don't set the commission. The judge does. Right. And the judge has to set a reasonable commission. Now, if I had to guess what that reasonable commission is, I would say probably 5%. And, and I'm basing that on what is typically ordered in a probate sale. Probate mm -hmm. sales typically order 5%. I'm thinking this is probably the same. So overall, 
uh, just your opinion. Do you think that this this heirs law, the one that was passed two years ago, set this new procedure in place? Do you think it's a good law, or or what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a great law. <laughs> I, I I think it's a really really good law. This is a it's a very good law, um, and yeah, so it's a much much better process all around. I mean, the only thing that I could say as a criticism of this law is that it perhaps makes it a little bit harder for the property to be sold. I mean, it, it gives a bit too much power to um, the the owners of the property to sort of thwart a sale. But but that's the only criticism that I that I have of it. Overall, I really like this law. It's much fairer uh, and it helps people realize the full value of their property. Right. So so what's, I guess I should ask, you know, we mentioned this new procedure went into place a couple of years ago, but we're obviously talking about it today as a as a new law, AB 2245. So how does this new law expand this procedure and the eligibility for this process uh, going forward? Right. Well, that was quite a big buildup to get to the actual <laughs> law. <laughs> well, we had to explain. Yeah, people are familiar yeah. with this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's the change. So so before the application was limited to heirs. And, you know, in fact, the name of the law was the, the Uniform Heirs Property Law. And, and that was limited to people who gained ownership through inheritance and were related. And, of course, own property as tenants in common. Okay. And there was this complicated formula to figure out when a property was subject to this law. I mean, you had to sort of look at the percentages of inheritance and relationships. And, um, but all of that is now gone it's just we just struck that whole part of the law out and now it applies to everyone who is an owner of property as a tenant in common so they all have the right it doesn't matter if you're related it doesn't matter if you inherited the property anybody who's a tenant in common assuming the tenancy agreement itself doesn't divide the property in a particular way they have the right to take advantage of this new process if and when a partition action is filed if and when a coroner chooses to sell or split their share of the property, the owners, the other co-owners have the right to benefit from this new fairer process. Hmm. Is it still right. called the heirs law? No, it, we, it doesn't make sense to call it the heirs law anymore. So we, we changed the name. <laughs> I don't, I actually don't really know what the, what the new name is, but it's not the heirs law anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and, and did CAR sponsor this law? Yeah, this was a, this was our, our law. Um, it was uh, we sponsored it previously uh, last year, and then we've responded the expansion of it now. Nice. So it's good. All right. Great. Well, speaking of CAR sponsored legislation, I understand that CAR also sponsored a new housing law that's going to allow residential units to be built in areas that are zoned commercial or retail. Is that right? Yes, yes, absolutely. We we did sponsor that uh, that law, and that's the the basic idea behind the law to allow residential units to be built in areas that are presently zoned for retail or commercial. So, what's the basic philosophy behind this law? Is CAR backing away from free market principles? Uh, yeah. You know, sort of getting away from you know that sort of purpose. Are we? all in on directives from on high over here. What, what's going on? What's, what's the philosophy or the thing, motivation behind this? Well, I would say CAR is behind the basic free market approach as much as it, it's possible. And, and that's reflected in this law. So I would say there's three ideas behind this law. First, 
the basic one, you can build residential properties, even those zoned retail and commercial. And secondly, the project should be eligible for what we call streamlined ministerial approval. But here's, here's where the philosophy of, of CAR comes into play. The third thing is that the project is not encumbered as deed-restricted low-income housing. Now, it's still probably low-income housing, but not deed-restricted. Deed-restricted housing has all sorts of conditions attached, income eligibility, occupancy restrictions, lottery procedures, and our, and our bill avoids all of that. Can you, you mentioned a, a phrase in there. Can you remind me again what you mean by ministerial approval and why that's important? Sure. So, so every builder, every developer, what they want more than anything when they're doing these projects is they want ministerial approval. Highly, highly, highly desirable. And the reason is because it allows them to skip a huge part of the red tape, the regulatory process when you're building something, it can sometimes call for public hearings, which is you know, a, a, a major, major um, delay in getting your project through. But even more of a problem is the CEQA. So CEQA, that's the law that calls for an environmental uh, impact report. And doing the environmental impact report, that leads that can lead to all sorts of challenges and delays. And so ministerial approval avoids all of that. And, and sometimes we call ministerial approval, we call it approval by right, because really, as long as you sort of meet the criteria, you can go ahead with the project. But does this new law serve low-income persons? I mean, what happens if a low-income person buys, but then starts making a lot more money? Can they sell and keep the profit or do they have to sell to another low income person? How does this work? Right. Well, our our law is not specifically for the purpose of serving low income persons, mm. but because the, the, the units have to be built with that type of density, it will it will, in fact, serve them. But there's no there's no further restriction. So you don't have to be a low income person to buy it. It doesn't matter how much money you make. There's 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 no restriction on on selling. There's no restriction on, on profit sharing. So it's it's just it's a much in my opinion it's a it's a better uh, system. So how how does this law actually work? Okay. So so like we said, residential units they may be built on on any parcel where even if the parcel is already zoned office retail or parking as the principal use, you can still build the residential unit. And that's that's a fairly straightforward uh, part, of, part of the law. But with all of these housing laws, it's never actually straightforward. Um, every housing law I've ever read, they're just loaded with all sorts of conditions and technicalities. And, and this law really, in a way, it's, it's, it's no different. I mean, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling to read through. I mean, that's just, I guess that's par for the course when you're passing one of these housing laws. So I've listed a few of the conditions here. Um, and to be eligible to build in one of these office or retail zones, there's a bunch of conditions. And one is the building must be built with the same density that would be consistent with low-income housing. And that's where the low-income housing part comes in. You don't have to be low-income, but the density will be consistent with low-income housing. Number two, the project must comply with all local parking and design standards. Uh, number three, the project 
the contractors have to be paid a prevailing wage. That's more or less what it says. And number four, the project cannot be located next to an industrial use. So if you, you do all of those things, then you're going to be, there's, all, there's many other conditions, but you meet those conditions, you're going to be eligible for ministerial review, you'll be able to get your project through. So I believe there was another law this year that did a very similar thing to what you're describing that also allowed for residential units to be constructed in commercial and, and retail zones. How's, the, how's that other law? Is it the same, different? Well, I mean, you're right. There is another law and it's very similar. And that's AB 2011. So it's a different law, but it, it does illustrate the other approach. And and that one also says you can build units, uh, residential units, even though it's the area zoned office or retail. And it also allows for ministerial approval, but only when the project is 100% low income deed restricted. And there's a possibility of getting ministerial approval for mixed income units, but then they put other constraints that the property has to be located next to a commercial corridor. And there's all sorts of definitions as to what that is. All right. So on the whole, how do you see these laws affecting the housing landscape in the coming year? Both of these laws. Sure. So so I don't I don't know where you live, but like I, I occasionally go down to Buena Park and that's that's near Knott's Berry Farm and there's this shopping center down there and the Sears um went out of business like I don't know three or four years ago. It's it's a giant space. I mean it's just an absolutely huge space. You know, it's a Sears, right? But now it's it's empty. Mm. So so I I see that these areas where you have large stores like Sears or Kmart, they may have gone out of business. In the coming years, you might just see new residential developments built in those places. And I think if that happens, that's going to be largely uh, made possible by one of these two new laws. Oh, that's good. And that is true. We see that more and more uh, all yeah. over the place. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, another new law um, is AB 2170, and that concerns REO properties. So let's say I want to buy a residential one to four property from an REO. What are my chances if I'm buying and I intend to live in it? Um, and, well, and also, what, what exactly is an REO property? Maybe you can give us a little definition of that. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go with your first question. What are your chances? Well, your chances of, of buying this REO property and living in it have just gone up by a lot. Oh, right. <laughs> So that's that's the good that's the good news. Okay. So what's it, what's an REO property? So REOs, um, I mean, basic um, sort of word that agents come across all the time. It refers to normally a bank, a bank that had some type of lien on the property, a deed of trust, and they foreclosed on it, and they they took that property back at foreclosure because nobody else bid on the property, so they foreclosed on their own lien. They're now holding it, and now they're reselling it. So we so we call that REO. It stands for real estate owned, and frankly, that act that makes no sense whatever. whatever, whatever <laughs> but it means a bank that foreclosed on their own property is now reselling. It. Yeah. And, yeah. And that, to, what's that? I was gonna say we used to see a lot of these, you know, back in 2008, 2009, right? Mm -hmm. Like after the last housing crisis, I feel like these were were all the rage back then. Yeah, REOs well, everywhere. Knock, knock on wood, I mean. <laughs> True, <laughs> right? <laughs> you might be seeing more of them. Yeah. So does so this new law that we're talking about, uh, 
does it apply to all banks that sell REO properties? Well, no, it applies to banks that have done a lot of foreclosures. And by a lot, I mean 175 foreclosures or more in the preceding year. So mm -hmm. foreclosures on one to four residential property, if they have that, then this rule applies to them. So you said this new law vastly improves uh, us, the hypothetical owner-occupant purchaser, of being able to buy one of these properties. Under yeah. this new law, does it mean that if I submit an offer to, to purchase from an REO, they have to accept my offer? Well, if it were only that simple, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you just submit an offer for five bucks, you know. Right. No, there's nothing in this law that says that... Um, they have to accept it. Um, the, what the law says is that, well, once they put the property on the market, then they must respond to your offer within thirty day within the thirty day time period. Right. Yeah. So they have to respond, and they have to respond in writing. Now you're going to ask, what does respond mean? Exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. So this law doesn't really tell us what respond means. It just says respond. I, I looked at this law looking for some sort of clue as to what to what that means, but it doesn't say anything. So, mm. so clearly, it does not mean that they have to accept your offer. In, in frank, in fact, it doesn't even really mean they have to make a counter. So only that they respond in writing. But the fact is, they can only do that in regard to uh, prospective owner occupant buyers or certain types of nonprofits. They have. A 30-day window in which those are the only people that they can accept an offer from. So, so that's why we say we describe this law as giving the prospective owner-occupant buyer or nonprofit the right to have the first look at the property. And I think just that by itself is going to greatly increase uh, the chances of getting the getting the property. Hmm. Now, I'm reading here that this law also prohibits bundled sales. What is a bundled sale? Right. Yeah. So that's one more part of this law. And it's a very important part of this law. So, so bundled sales um, is when um, a bank normally is selling a whole bunch of properties at one time. Right. And so like they, they, maybe they own like, they, maybe they have four, 500, um, uh, properties in their foreclosure in their portfolio now they're going to sell 10 at a time to you know some kind of large investor who can just hand over like a giant bundle of cash and so so what this says what this new law says is that they can't do that you can't bundle your sale you have to sell a residential one to four property individually individually you can't even sell two at a time you have to sell one at a time and and obviously the reason for that is to give um, the ordinary person, like you are the ordinary person, giving you the ordinary person a chance to buy. Okay, maybe you're not the ordinary person. <laughs> Believe you're, me, I'm the ordinary person. So, no, you're, yeah. you're special, you're very special. <laughs> but that, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Excellent. All right, so let's change gears a little bit here um, and, and talk about this Article 34 sort of issue. So there was this ballot measure related to low rent dwellings called Article 34. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Okay. So so presently in California, um, if, if there is some type of government financed construction of low rent apartments, then 
the voters of the city or county where it's going to be located, they have to vote to approve that project. Otherwise, you can't build it, right? Or, or, or otherwise, it, there's a lot of hurdles that are that are made in accessing state or federal funds. There's workarounds, but in general, it's this huge hurdle placed in accessing state or federal funds. And that's rule article 34 of the California Constitution. Now, that's been there since 1950, and that's why this has to be a ballot measure, because the legislature doesn't have the authority on its own to change the California Constitution. Only the voters can. So what this ballot measure is, this is a, it's a measure to repeal Article 34. Got it. And, and why do we want to repeal Article 34? Well, you know, obviously we want to repeal Article 34 because it creates problems in affordable housing development. It's, as oh, I said, it's a stumbling block, okay? It creates oh, real God. barriers to accessing state and federal funds for that purpose. But there's actually a little bit more to it than that. There's, there's a second reason, and this has to do with the, the background to Article 34, and that, in fact, involves CAR. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if we go back to 1950, uh, the voters approved uh, Proposition 10, which added, which added Article 34 to the state constitution, and that was adopted as part of the, um, the backlash to federal investment uh, in low-income housing. So the backlash, and and that was um, that was sponsored by the organization, the California Real Estate Association. They led the effort to add Article Thirty Four to the Constitution, and clearly the intent was discriminatory. There's no doubt about that. So California Real Estate Association, that name kind of rings a bell. Who who is that? Who is that? Mm -hmm. That's us. That wow. is CAR. Okay. Right. That we so we changed our name mm -hmm. um, in 1978, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And in large part because of things like this. So, mm -hmm. so I believe uh, the name change was intended to as a sort of as a signal as part of a, a policy shift, uh, essentially embracing uh, civil civil rights. Uh, in general, and civil rights legislation specifically. So this ballot measure, it's not just a practical way to increase rental housing, but it's a way for our organization to make amends, a way to correct the wrong of the past. Mm, good. So when is Article 34 due to be repealed? Well, I mean, the thing is, it might not be repealed. So, mm -hmm. my, you know, the voters will have the final say on this, and that will not happen until March of 2024. So it's a ways off. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll keep our eyes on that one. Definitely. All right. So again, changing gears. Um gonna talk next about some landlord tenant topics. We haven't really touched on that too much yet. Um, so the next law that we're gonna talk about concerns protecting tenants who are victims of domestic violence. Uh, so you know, I guess the first question is. Right now, if a tenant is a victim of domestic violence and that tenant needs to escape a dangerous situation, can this tenant simply terminate and walk away from their lease? Yes. Yes, that is the current law. So when a tenant, because of domestic violence, needs to terminate their 
their agreement, they can. And the and the current and the current law says their if they do that, their liability to the landlord is limited. The only thing the landlord can charge is 14 days rent after the notice to terminate is given. Beyond that, the tenant must be released without owing any any further rent. Got it. And just to clarify, we talk a lot in a general sense and, and in these laws about protections for, you know, quote unquote, victims of domestic violence. Are these just, are these laws, is that a euphemism just to mean women who are victims of domestic violence or who does this really protect? Well, I mean, I think if we're going to be honest, it, it is mostly women. So I, I used to work in it. I, I, for two years, I, I worked part time in, uh, in a domestic violence clinic. So I've done about, written up about 100 T TROs in that whole time <laughs> I can tell how many men do you think came in asking for a TRO one zero one there was wow. one mm. yeah and and, and 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 he was complaining of being stalked you know mm -hmm. so which is which is something you can get a, a, a TRO for but it, it's oh. not violence per, per se no yeah. I guess this, I guess this all changes after the uh, Johnny uh, Depp and Amber. Um, oh, her, possibly. Uh, her? Yeah, yeah, it's been a hot topic lately. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, what? How is it defined? What exactly is domestic violence? Well, um, domestic violence is. It, it actually is not just domestic violence as we think of it. it. Can include a range of crimes, including stalking, human trafficking, and even elder abuse. But the protections are not just limited to the tenant. Who, who is who experiences domestic violence is also triggered when domestic violence is committed against any person in the tenant's household or even against a tenant's immediate family member, whether or not they're part of the household. So you said a tenant's liability is limited to 14 days of rent. So that's all that they would have to pay after being having provided a notice to the landlord. Um, but can the landlord deduct for prior rent due? And what about things like um, damage beyond normal wear and tear that you normally see deducted from a security deposit? Yes. So the, the landlord can deduct for um, prior rent if that was due. And the landlord can also make deductions uh, from the security deposit based upon uh, damage, damage beyond normal wear and tear in, in, in the regular way. They just can't claim any rent, any additional rent beyond the 14 days. Mm -hmm. So what happens if they try to do that? <laughs> Collect well, additional rent when they're allowed to? Well, that's that's where the new law comes in. So so clearly it was illegal to do that under the old law, but there wasn't any real damage except the actual damage of the money that they could not, that they were not supposed to collect it. But now under the new law, there's a, a penalty. So there's a penalty of up to $5,000. Oh, God. So that, that's a lot of money, $5,000. Up to $5,000. There's some discretion there. I mean, it could yeah. be as low as $100,000. So if a penalty is charged or incurred, then who's on the hook for that? Is, can the property manager be liable, or is it only the, the property owner who could be hit with that penalty? Well, I mean, this law is actually pretty clear on that point. It's it's both. It's it's yeah. it, can be, it can be the landlord, but it can also definitely be the property manager as well as the landlord. Oh wow! So uh, mentioned that the tenant's only liable for fourteen days after they you know give a written notice that they're terminating. 
but what kind of, of notice is actually required? Can the tenant just basically tell the landlord, I'm out of here, I, there's been a domestic violence incident, or, or what kind of documentation do they have to provide? Right. So we do, we get this question on the hotline um, every now and then I've gotten it. Mm -hmm. And the question is really, how does a property manager know if a tenant is terminating on the basic basis of domestic violence? Well, the first thing is you can't just give oral notification. So just telling the landlord is, is out. The notice has to be in writing, but wow. there's, there's more to it. So, so it has to be in writing and attached to that notice must be uh, one of several different types of things, either like a copy of a temporary restraining order or other types of emergency protective orders, maybe a, a copy of a police report, or possibly documentation from a qualified third, third party professional who came by the information in their professional capacity. There's other catch-alls, but I mean, uh, there has to be a notice in writing and there needs to be something attached to it documenting the domestic violence. Well, that makes sense. So there's a second part to this law. Um, yes. It can turn. It actually concerns staying in the property as opposed to terminating the tenancy. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I mean, not not every tenant wants to vacate the the um, the rental, but it, this is actually yeah. a protection when the landlord is attempting to evict evict you. So. Yeah, I thought the victims of domestic violence were already protected from eviction because of the domestic violence even if the police had been called out on multiple occasions. Yes, that's true. Yeah, so currently a victim of domestic violence is generally protected against eviction. So for example, a perpetrator comes to the property, the police are called out, um, and right now that tenant would be protected against eviction because of the disturbances involving domestic violence. And that, that's a defense to an unlawful detainer. The landlord cannot evict because of domestic violence. And there's a related protection. Uh, there's another law which specifically says that a landlord cannot impose penalties on any person that calls out the police in good faith for emergency assistance in cases of domestic violence. But having said all that, there's still at least one protection that is lacking. And that is, and that's what this law is addressing. And that's that's where the perpetrator lives at the property. The perpetrator is actually living in that property. Now, in that case, under the current law, the landlord can say, look, I don't like having these constant disturbances and I am going to evict on that basis. So, but, so the new law says, even if the perpetrator lives in the property, the tenant cannot be evicted. And instead, what this law requires is that if there is an eviction lawsuit, the judge must order a partial eviction. Only the yeah. perpetrator is to be evicted. Everyone else, they stay. Mm -hmm. All right. So this law requires the, the judge do a partial eviction, kick the perpetrator out. What if the judge doesn't think the perpetrator is, is guilty of the crime of domestic violence? How, how does that play out? Then then they lose. They lose the lawsuit, basically. It's not a, it's, I guess, you know what? I'm not exactly sure exactly what happens, but you don't necessarily evict the perpetrator at that point. Maybe you evict everyone or maybe you evict no one, but there's certainly no partial eviction order. Got it. So this is brand new, right? I thought unlawful detainers, I thought an eviction couldn't be partial. I thought that the whole idea behind 
an eviction is that the landlord wants the entire property back. Well, there's there are certainly cases which say exactly that, that there's no such thing as a partial eviction. But I guess they have to change that law now because mm-hmm. this this is clearly an exception to the general rule that sure. evictions do not result in partial evictions. Got it. Mm. Um, does the landlord have to change the locks on the unit after a partial eviction? Well, if the landlord, if if the judge orders a partial eviction, then the judge has discretion to require the landlord to change the lock. So maybe not every um, court-ordered partial eviction will will require a change of locks, but certainly some will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense so that the perpetrator couldn't return. But what happens if the victim invites the perpetrator back into the property after an order to remove the perpetrator has been issued? Yeah, well, I mean, that's clearly something that they're not they're not allowed to be doing under this law. And if the attorney for the landlord had done it in the correct manner, mm-hmm. then they would have gotten a judgment where they could just go right back to court do an immediate prove-up hearing, right, and obtain an immediate order for eviction. Now, if the attorney for the landlord had not done that, right, if they did it wrong, then basically they might have to start all over again, file a new UD from scratch. So yet yet another good reason why landlords, property owners, uh, why it's worth it to get an experienced eviction attorney to to help you out, to make sure that's the right Exactly. So one last question. What let's say all of this plays out and and there's a partial eviction uh and the perpetrator leaves. What happens if that remaining tenant now can't afford the rent on their own anymore? Well, there's nothing in this law that that gives the remaining tenant a break on the rent. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. just that, that's just nothing to do with this. So the answer is they could be looking at receiving a 3-day notice to pay rent or quit. Got mm-hmm. it. So they're still they're they're allowed to have the other person remove and stay in the property, but now they're gonna have to find a way to to pay that rent or or face a three day notice. Right, they're basically subject to all landlord tenant laws. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. All right. So let's move on to another tenant related law. Um, AB two five five nine. Now that concerns reusable tenant screening reports. What are those? Right. Okay. So the reusable tenant screening report, the RTSR, <laughs> uh, it's a. <laughs> well, that's what it says in the law. It's a standardized screening report that the tenant purchases for themselves, and the tenant, well, it per- they purchase it, mm-hmm. and the tenant will pay this one-time fee for the report but it can be used many times over, as many times as they can within the next 30 days. In other words, it's good for 30 days and and they, and that saves the tenant like a lot of money. And is that why they passed this law? I mean, why do you think they passed this law? Yeah, it was exactly that point, basically to okay. save the tenant money. Otherwise, those, money for the tenant. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise those tenant application and screening fees, they can really add, add up. And so this report has to be made available to the landlord directly or through a third-party website from a company that deals specifically in RTSR. I see. And is there a cost to the landlord? I mean, how much does the landlord have to pay for one of these? Right. So that's a key point of this law. Uh, you know, the landlord doesn't have to pay at all for this. The, oh. report, the report will be free 
to the landlord. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay, deal. All right, so now that this new procedure's in place, is this gonna be the new normal? Does the landlord, are they required to accept one of these reusable tenant screening reports, these RTSRs, if a tenant submits one? Um, no, they're, they're right. not. So that's, that's another key part of this law, which is the landlord is not forced to use an RTSR. So the use is voluntary. Um, I mean, if the landlord wants to keep their current process, they can. They can just keep doing exactly what they're doing. But if they want to use the RTSR, they can do that as well. So if the landlord does agree to, to accept the RTSR, uh, what then? Can they... You know, do they still have costs? Can they still charge a fee for accessing the report or for processing an application? Well, they might still have costs, but they can't pass that cost on to the landlord. The so tenant? to the tenant, I mean, to, to the tenant, that's what I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the use is voluntary, but if the landlord does accept the RTSR, then the landlord cannot charge. They cannot charge for it. They cannot charge either a fee to access the report or they can't charge a general application screening fee. All right, because it's made available to them for free. So what charge right. is it cost? Yeah. But they any kind of additional charge outside of that? Is that what you meant, Jana? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they can't charge anything. If they accept the reusable tenant screen report, they can't charge any outside fees related to the tenant applying for the unit, right? I mean I would I would say so. There's some, you know, if you look at the technicalities of this law, there's some wiggle room as to what it means to charge an application screening fee. Mm -hmm. But I think we just gotta take it at face value yeah. and go with the plain English Pro meaning. Probably not a good good place to try to get too clever. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh wrap up. We have one more new law to talk about. It's kind of a fun one. I heard that California has some new holidays that we're gonna be celebrating. What what are those? Oh, yeah. So there are actually three new official state holidays. And the first is Juneteenth. That's June 19th. And it celebrates emancipation from slavery after the Civil War. And of course, it's already a federal holiday, but now it's going to be a new permanent state holiday under California law. And the second one is Genocide Remembrance Day. Now that's on April 24th. And and that's a reference to the Armenian genocide that began in April of 1915. And then there's Lunar New Year. Okay, well, so which day is Lunar New Year? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so Lunar New Year doesn't have a fixed date under mm -hmm. the solar calendar. It's, it's like Easter. It, it moves around the solar calendar, and that's because it's based upon, as the name suggests, the lunar calendar. Sure. Hmm, that makes sense. Well, we love to hear about new holidays, of course, but uh, what does this have to do with real estate? And, and specifically, why do real estate agents need to know about these new holidays? Right. Well, it actually has very little to do with real estate, but there is one tie-in, right? There had to be. And this has to do with our December forms release. Hmm. So in the RPA and, and in all of our purchase agreements, we are clarifying a definition that has created a lot of confusion in the past, and that has to do with what exactly is a holiday. So the way our contracts read right now, they simply say that the last day for performance cannot be a legal holiday, quote unquote, legal holiday. But the contract gives no further clarification as to exactly what a legal holiday is. So, so now we're going to tie it 
directly to the civil code and the government code definitions. And that's where these holidays come into play. These holidays will all, all appear in the government code, which is tied directly into the new um, RPA. Okay. Well, good to know. And I guess that wraps up our discussion on the 2023 new laws. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Robert. I think we, we covered a whole lot of new laws. Yeah, that was very informative. Thank you. Oh, no problems. My, my pleasure. And I'd be happy to come back at any time. Oh, you, oh, you know we'll have you back uh, sooner or <laughs> later. Great. All right. All right. Thanks, Robert. All right. No problem. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it and you're a little more informed about the new laws you need to know about for 2023. Thanks again to Robert for joining us today. And thanks as always to all of you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed all of our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us at legalpodcast at car.org. And finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR Member Legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the hotline with any questions or issues at 213 213- 739-8282, Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturday, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. Our other informational and educational materials can be found at car.org under the Risk Management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and more. Talk to you next month. Bye, everyone.